We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan. Today we'll be covering the last seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Hey, good evening. And also joining us in studio is Ross Feingold of D.C. International Advisory. Ross, good to have you back. Thank you. Good evening. And Brian Hugh, the founding editor of New Bloom Magazine. Uh, Brian, good to have you as well. Good evening. Thanks for having me. Today in the show, uh, lots of new names and faces to learn this week as high-profile cabinet officials resigned from Thai's government. Uh, if that sort of thing doesn't get your blood boiling, in the second half, we'll be focusing on at least two of the major vices. First, gambling. The casino referendum failed in Penghu, but if not gambling for the future of Penghu, what is next for the tiny island chain? Then sex! Debate over prostitution has been reignited after protesting sex workers called on the Taipei city government to legalize prostitution. Uh, then, got another debate that was reignited this week, that being whether or not President Tsai should pardon former President Chen Shui-bian. I don't know. I don't want to weigh in uh, which vice we'll be looking at here, but uh, we can leave it to our listeners to decide on that one. First up for today, though, uh, big news for everyone out there who enjoys, you know, such amenities as indoor lighting, heat, well-charged iPhones. Uh, in what could be a real shock to the energy sector, the cabinet has approved a plan to break up Thai power to make way for a strong green energy sector. Uh, this one's going to get a little bit wonky, but, you know, keep your eye on the prize, gambling, sex, all that good stuff in the second half. Uh, for now, though, uh, Gavin, what is this proposal that we're talking about? Yes, this is the Amendments to the Electricity Act. Now, we've talked about this before because the government has been talking about it for the past several months. But the Cabinet on Thursday of this week finally came out with their final paper on the two-phase plan to amend the Electricity Act, which is going to pave the way for the deregulation of the island's power market and transform Thai Power, which of course is the state generator, into a holding company with subsidiaries. The bill also talked about the development of green energy and the Premier turned around and said, well, the first part of this two-phase amendment will see the government focusing on the liberalisation of the green energy sector. Mm. Now, what this will mean is that companies that create green energy will be allowed to sell and transmit the electricity directly to the users of mm -hmm. said electricity and the pricing That'll be set bet between the actual users and the generating companies themselves. But if you are not one of these green energy producers, then you ha still have to sell to Thai Power. Yep. This is just this just diverts the t green energy going to Thai Power and then Thai Power distributing it. Basically. So, so Thai Power would be two companies, basically? Well, here we go. Now, the, the green energy thing that I just talked about, the government is saying, well, we hope that can happen between one and two and a half years after completion of the first phase. That's all the first phase thing. Mm. Now, it gets a bit sticky here because Thai Power will become a parent company in the next six to nine years after the first phase of the law amendment is finished. Mm -hmm. And they would have a subsidiary in charge of power generation and another subsidiary which would be responsible for electrical transmission, distribution and sales. Mm -hmm. So kind of breaking up those two functions into two different entities 
I guess, uh, but they'd still be state-owned. I mean, overall, it would still be a state-owned Thai power company. would still be state-owned, but because, obviously, you have these private power companies with the green energy, they could mm-hmm. circumvent the state-owned company in distribution and pricing. All right. But so- there's a key thing here, which is, can those private companies offer electricity to end users, consumers, or, or uh, in companies, industries, at a price that, that is attractive to the consumers um, or the users of, of the energy. So you could open the market, but uh, the, is the rest of the infrastructure, acquiring land, building facilities, et cetera, going to allow those private operators to deliver the power at an attractive price to consumers? And Or will Thai power still be you know, the best price option and people will not be turning to these private operators if the private operators even come into existence? Well, that kind of gets to the logic uh, that Premier Lin Tran is putting behind this proposal. He's saying that basically uh, the only way to get a strong, vibrant green energy sector is to get rid of some of these regulations, get rid of this monopoly, uh, and make way for you know a more uh, market, a more open approach to uh, energy generation. I don't know that much about power generation. Has it been regulation uh, that has been holding green energy back in Taiwan? It's all of the above, right? So, it, yeah, yes, it, lots of regulatory hurdles, but acquiring land, building uh, the facilities, uh, the, the cost of building offshore or onshore wind, for example, uh, is very high. Whether you could deliver the electricity to the end user, whether it could be delivered here to ICRT at a price that is attractive to ICRT versus just continuing to be a customer Thai power remains to be seen. And, and from what Gavin just described, it doesn't sound like we're, we're addressing those challenges. We're just saying someone else can deliver it, but we don't know whether they'll be able to deliver it at an attractive price. And in fact, maybe we shouldn't be focused so much on price because we know that green energy, by its very nature, typically does cost more. Of course, then you've got a point about not just who can deliver it, can they deliver it, can they be built? Of course, then you go back to the system of the wind farms. Great, they look nice from a distance, yeah, but then you go back to the argument of not in my backyard, so while I want my, while I have my company sitting in this area and I want cheap power, do I want a wind farm when I open my living room curtains every morning and see a wind farm? Supply, surprisingly noisy, apparently, these wind farms. A lot of local residents complaining about the noise factor. Yeah, I mean, uh, the issue is that Thai power is kind of unpopular with Thai's constituency. So Thai wants to really kind of turn things around. Um, but we'll have to see if Jack can, can do that because, you know, it does seem like an uphill struggle. In the region, you know, like... You know, in let's say South Korea or Japan, mostly these kind of state-owned monopolies haven't really been broken up in the power industry. So you know, mm. I also don't see where competitors are kind of going to emerge out of nowhere. When also, as Gavin was kind of getting at there, Thai Power ha- does have some green energy already. Why would uh, the lo- why, why would non-Thai Power do a better job of bringing that further than Thai Power? Right, I that, mean, I guess that's basically what you've been saying. Right. That, that, that is the challenge, whether it's not in my backyard or the cost of labor or cost of acquiring land, et cetera, et cetera. There, there are a number of other factors. Just saying that someone else can be a service provider doesn't mean, as, as you said, Keith, that someone else wants to be the service provider and that they can make money doing it. Because if it's a private operator, then they're, they're looking to make a profit on, on, on what are actually very significant investments to build wind farms or other sources of green energy. And, and frankly, the record in other jurisdictions of allowing multiple operators to deliver power options to end users is somewhat mixed, mm-hmm. uh, specifically in the United States. But I think it's the same in other places as well. It's not necessarily a successful 
models. Mm. Now, uh, while that is all in the mix, that uh, uncertainty about the future and you know what Taiwan's energy mix is going to look like, uh, this very week uh, we got some warnings about power cuts. Yeah, Thai Power was once again warning of the possibility of power rationing as its reserve capacity fell below a key threshold. Mm. This has got Wednesday of this week. It mm-hmm. got rather warm on Wednesday of this week, as I found it's out like to my cost. Kind of warm. Kind of warm. It seemed like weird timing. <laughs> kind of warm. I walked home. I walked home from lunch, and I was like, kind of like, felt like I was in a desert actually by the time I got home. Because <laughs> of course, and it got hot this weekend, this Wednesday, like I said. Mm. And well, Tire Power says its reserves fell below the nine hundred megawatt level. And that automatically triggered a power rationing warning. Not below 900 megawatts. Thai Power has actually been warning of this for a long time. But then, of course, they started warning about this when the government said it's going to scrap the nuclear power plants. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of at the beginning of the summer, which timing-wise made a little bit more sense to me coming up on the summer rather than rounding out the summer. Uh, And that led to a number of people saying that maybe we should keep some of these uh, nuclear plants open for longer. That was the former economics minister, Jung Bing Kun. He said maybe they should unmodernize mothball the fourth nuclear power plant mm. put it into operation while the government phases out the first two nuclear power plants right because of course the other energy source that taiwan is very reliant on and is also unpopular would be coal and uh so you know just not a lot of good options right now i guess is the take home from that up next uh so that's all the policy plan for president Tsai, uh but There's some trouble at the top as well as the administration faces down not one, but two high-profile resignations this week. Those being the resignations of Presidential Office Secretary General Lin Pi Chao and National Security Bureau Director General Yang Kua Chiang. Those resignations were both approved on Wednesday. Uh, Of course, questions about the fitness of Tsai's appointees in the cabinet and elsewhere have dogged her administration uh, since day one, pretty much. I mean, uh, just ask Ross. He's had some doubts, I think it would be fair to say, about uh, everyone on down from Premier Lin Tran. Uh, So we'll discuss that angle in a bit. Uh, But the official statement on why those resignations happened Gavin are kind of on the bland end of the spectrum. Yeah, the presidential office said that the National Security Bureau head, Yang Guo Chiang, apparently he's indicated his intentions to resign on multiple occasions in recent months, with a quote from the presidential office saying that he believes himself to have completed his mission thus far mm. and he wishes now to leave. Yeah, they just got, just got tired of it. Have other things to do. He's not a young and sprightly bloke. He also hasn't been in office for terribly long. I mean, how, how, how much? Four or five months? It hasn't yeah. been that long. Anyway, he's going to be replaced by former Air Force Commander Peng Shung Chu. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason that the presidential office gave for Lin Bi Zhao, he was the presidential sec- office secretary general, him standing down is because he wanted to focus more on his writing. Don't we all? Don't we all? Uh, okay, so these reasons, I mean, maybe maybe he is uh, a, a budding writer, uh, the next F. Scott Fitzgerald, who knows? Or uh, maybe there's more to these stories, it's kind of hard to say. Uh, since those announcements came out earlier this week, Gavin, have we gotten any indication of more to these stories? No. So that's all we got for now. No, we haven't even got a replacement for a presidential office secretary general. We've got, we've got a replacement, and that's the current... Deputy Secretary General. Well, that's of what the he's there presidential for. Presidential Office Jason. What is, it, what is a Presidential Office Secretary General do exactly? I'm not. I'm not super clear on that. 
it is a very important role. It it actually has some legally defined responsibilities, yeah. but but more generally, it, it is a a coordinator and. That's probably why uh, this gentleman has been forced out or resigned, however you want to uh, describe it. But uh, the public and the media and legislators and ministries, we, we see that there's some disappointment in policy coordination evidenced by the executive UN spokesperson losing his job not long ago, further evidenced by the president now having a new coordination meeting with members of the uh, DPP Legislative Caucus. So clearly there's disappointment in coordination and people who are supposedly involved in coordination in getting policy done, such as this gentleman, uh, by definition, that's part of his job, uh, are going to be in for criticism and possibly losing their jobs as, as what's happened now. I mean, Tsai wants to avoid the perception of a cabinet reshuffle, but you know there is this kind of turnover. So, I mean, she is trying to kind of turn over a new leaf so you know but you know because people were waiting for this yeah yeah but the public's eyes is always on you know resignations and seeing if this indicates you know a breakdown in the administration or you know so forth so well know, that's how i'm framing it yeah so <laughs> there's also a very significant danger here which is to repeat some of the uh, challenges that the previous dpp administration had where mm. Whether it was the premier or some of the ministers, and more specifically, I think, Gavin, you you would remember this, uh, the personnel in the presidential office, like the secretary general and some of the other department heads uh, in the presidential office, there was frequent turnover under Chen Shui-bian. These people would rotate between other government roles or moving to DPP headquarters back into the presidential office. Uh, I, I think that is something President Tsai should make an effort to avoid. And the best way to avoid that is by providing good leadership and hiring good people. Uh, but going back to Brian, uh, were you kind of indicating that you feel like that's an unfair jump to conclusions in this case? Perhaps uh, they're leaving for just totally innocuous reasons? Um, I think that's kind of unlikely. I mean, it's always possible that, you know, I mean, Ty, Ty doesn't want to look as if, you know, there's a wave of breakdown, if there's a wave of resignations within the DPP or that there's been some kind of breakdown. But, you know, how else, you know, sometimes as we kind of see with recent high profile resignations regarding Megabank, you know, they have to have some kind of justification for leaving mm-hmm. or, 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 you know, sometimes people are not allowed to resign until a certain moment has passed in, let's say, the news cycle. So, so you're that way. This is exactly what it looks like. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> but I think, as far as Joe Public's concerned, let's talk about Joe Public here. Joe Public would know the head of the National Security Bureau. Mm-hmm. So when the head of the National Security Bureau goes, Joe Public would go, ooh. But of course, Joe Public is not necessarily going to bat an eyelid when the presidential office deputy or the presidential office secretary general disappears. He's not the head of a. He's not the head of the Ministry of Economics. He's not the head of some. Thing that makes some government entity cabinet office that makes the headlines every day. Right, basically. exactly. Although the DPP is kind of going on the offensive to make their policies well known, perhaps uh, to kind of head off this sort of criticism, uh, we heard earlier this week that they're going to be holding a two-month national tour and host 129 face-to-face meetings with local residents around Taiwan, basically taking their policy proposals to the people to they, explain they got a bus. to them. they got a tour bus. Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's like Thai Fest 2016. They need a band or something. Uh, they should get Willie Nelson's bus. That would be awesome. <laughs> I think it would be better to get Donald Trump after the uh, U.S. election campaign, Ooh. and he could... I don't think anyone do these can rallies Donald and say, Trump to do anything he could at say, all. These policies are going to be huge. They're going to be huge. We're going to make make Taiwan great. There you go. Uh, But uh, if they need to do this kind of two-month 
Thai Fest uh, around Taiwan, it, it shows that. I they, really hope that that doesn't stick. stick. Nobody call it Thai Fest. Anyway. Keith, I think it's it's great. So I, I hope they put a big banner on the bus or they paint the bus. Uh, but but it does show that there there's a communication shortcoming, and it's something that the Ma government. Uh, was very guilty of throughout uh, its tenure, and it's unfortunate if the Thai government is going to repeat those mistakes of letting their build a perception in the media or amongst the public that policy making is not getting done. Mm. It also just strikes to the public that you know policymaking is being done kind of in a way that's very remote from them. You know that there's you know Ling Chen and his cabinet have not created the perception that you know they're really in touch with people. Just the frequent kind of blowbacks against cabinet officials for just you know statements that really don't resonate resonate with public opinion at all, or mm. just you know seem to come from on high. That 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 hasn't helped. So you know going to the people and going down to I don't know the countryside. I mean they're trying to they're trying to fix that. That you know it's trying to patch things up at this point. Mm. So you think Thai Fest 2016 too little too late? It seems so. But mm. um, you know, like I mean, I mean, they want to avoid the perception of a change or you know a, a kind of attempt to turn over new leaf. So they're going to mm-hmm. try to paint this as continuity or like oh mm-hmm. we've always been doing this kind of stuff. Right. Right. Well, that was a regular thing with the Mara administration, wasn't it? You'd get some comment from the presidential office going. We wish our policies to be put forward better to the general public. That, every week they came out with that one, didn't they? Hmm. Uh, all right, so we're going to have to see what comes of that. But uh, moving on in the show, uh, we've actually got another new name to learn as well this week. Bank of Kaohsiung Chairman Lee Rui-tang uh, was yesterday appointed as the chairman of the Financial Supervisory Commission. Uh, and in getting that appointment, uh, he's walking into a bit of a firestorm uh, he'll be tasked with handling, of course, the fallout from the Megabank scandal and the XPEC scandals. Gavin, a uh, big, big lot on his plate. Yeah, well, he replaces Dinko Hwar, of course, who was forced to step down because he faced a public backlash over the handling of those two scandals. Too much on M- his well, plate. Well, basically, most notably, the mega financial holdings money laundering mm-hmm. scandal. That's the bigger one. That's the bigger one, of course. Well, the, the XPEC one is more, well, that's still going on, really, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah, but of course, the guy that took over, Li Rei Tsang, he, of course, was... He worked in Kaohsiung, was in Kaohsiung a long time. He was also a former finance minister under President Chen Shui-bian, and he became the head of the Kaohsiung City's Finance Bureau in 2011. He made a bit of a name for himself down south because he successfully reduced the city's debt, and he also boosted capital expenditure in Kaohsiung when he was the head of their financial department. All right, quite a couple of notches on his belt. Yep. Well, but that that's actually the the issue here with this appointment is do the notches on his belt qualify him to be head of a financial regulator of a a very uh, mature and complex financial market in Taiwan? Uh, the, the, clearly, there was some industry disappointment. So the stakeholders in the financial services industry were not impressed with this appointment because he is not familiar with the world of international finance, just looking at his resume. Yes, he may have been successful as a municipal official. His time as the chairman of a, a relatively small bank in Kaohsiung is, has been brief, and he is not somebody who's worked in, in very large financial services organization or as a regulator, as, as Mr. Mr. Ding, who's now out of the job. At least he had spent most of his career working as a financial regulator at the FSC and its predecessor agencies. And he'd also been chairman of one of the financial markets here in Taipei. Uh, there, there is a very fair question whether or not this man is qualified for the job, which is going to make his job extremely difficult because the first time that – uh, there's a perception that a situation has not been handled correctly. People are going to bring up that he wasn't actually that qualified to begin with. 
You don't want the you well, don't want those bankers to doubt you. It technically, it couldn't get worse than the mega financial scandal and the expect scandal, really, could it? Or could it? Maybe it could. We just had to wait and see, won't we? <laughs> I mean, I, it feels like a job that nobody really wants at this point. So you know, one wonders if if that might be the reason. You know, nobody wanted it. So he's he the pinata. Yeah. He just got. <laughs> he's going to be the punching bag for everybody. Poor guy. Well, we'll see what happens. Maybe maybe he'll rise to the challenge. We'll just have to wait and see, as Gavin just said right there. Uh, but that's not all. Actually, we have even more new names to learn this week, uh, and these names come with some pretty controversial policy positions. Uh, those names being, well, some of those names being uh, Huang Jiayuan, Remington Huang, and Zhang Chenglin. Uh, and they belong to the guys currently fighting their way through a harrowing confirmation process for grand justice. Of course, they serve in Taiwan's uh, top court. This week, uh, that confirmation process has included a grilling from lawmakers. Uh, those lawmakers are asking some pretty tough questions, uh, and those nominees are giving some pretty interesting answers, Gavin. Yes. Now, they were quizzed about a lot of things. They're, these guys are going on the Constitutional Court, which is a court, basically, of grand justices that deal with constitutional matters. Mm-hmm. Criminal cases and the interesting stuff doesn't go to them. Mm-hmm. The constitutional stuff goes to them. But they were, they were quizzed, obviously. A lot of the quizzing came from KMT lawmakers who quizzed them on their stance on the existence of the Republic of China. Which the, is uh, something in the Constitution. Well, basically, the Constitution is the Republic of China Constitution. Mm-hmm. Now, they were quizzed on various <laughs> things from what do you think of the Republic of China? Do you recognize the Republic of China? And would you sing the Republic of China national anthem? Mm-hmm. The, 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 the anthem, that's not in the Constitution, though. Well, it might sound superfluous as we're talking on the radio in a rather superfluous way about this, but technically the, the, the three principles of the people, the Sanmin Jui, which is in the ROC National Anthem, is an ideology of the KMT. Mm-hmm. Ergo, it's part of the ROC's Constitution, and there you go. So technically that's why they quizzed them about the National Anthem. Do you recognise the Taiwan? The Republic of China was another way they were questioned. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, they several, a couple of these guys that were quizzed used the word Taiwan, which mm-hmm. is why the KMT weren't too happy about it. Mm-hmm. But the biggest pot hole that they fell down, or they didn't fall down, they were trying to be pushed down, mm-hmm. was when they were quizzed about the death sentence, mm. capital punishment. Yep. There you go. That was the big one. All three of them said that they oppose it. Several of them said they opposed it. One of them said, I think we should keep it because public consensus says we can keep it. Okay. So taking some controversial stands there, there's actually a laundry list of other things um, Mr. Jan said uh, in particular. He said he supported the abolition of the death penalty, legalizing same-sex marriage, upholding gender equality and male-dominated ancestor worship organizations, decriminalizing adultery. That's an interesting one. Legalizing euthanasia, legalizing surrogacy. So just like a laundry list of issues that uh, would make it a little bit sticky to uh, get nominated to make it through the legislative yuan. Uh, now, this is kind of interesting because Tsai's earlier picks were more pan-blue and were rejected as such. Now we're seeing these guys giving some more pan-greeny sort of answers and also picking up controversy. So, uh, just no winning, Ross? The most important qualification for this job should be their background as legal experts, whether as practicing lawyers or legal scholars. A lot of these questions are, are for media consumption. It's grandstanding by legislators. So now we've gotten into issues about whether or not you'll sing the anthem. 
I would say that, uh, and speaking as a lawyer myself, you you are ethically obligated to support the Constitution that you're going to be opining on. So uh, with due respect to the nominees, if they really do have a problem with the Constitution as it currently stands, then maybe this job is not the best job for them and they could seek to change the Constitution by being involved in, in public discussion in other ways. Uh, but the courts, and, and, and whether it's the Council of Grand Justices or the district and Supreme Courts, high courts that hear other types of disputes, uh, the public has a high expectation for improving the quality of the court system and, and of the judicial personnel. This is not a positive way to start going through that process, unfortunately. Uh, Brian, um, I see you're reaching for that mic. Yeah, it is actually kind of weird to me that the KMT is so kind of, you know, pushing on this issue, though, because, you know, the, the Thai administration has made it pretty clear that it does wish to stick to the ROC framework. And they're very afraid of, you know, constitutional amendments or, you know, a movement to throw out the constitution of the ROC and try to replace it with something that's, you know, localized or, you know, like a Republic of Taiwan. But I think they're just kind of batting at specters. So it's, it's very strange. But, but Brian, if, if that's, if that's uh, where, where the Thai administration wants to keep things, why, why aren't they nominating uh, judges or, or, or justices of the, uh, the Supreme Court who, who share that, the Constitutional Court, who share that view? I mean, why, why, why are they, they should be vetting people, say, like, do you share this view that is our current policy on, on the Constitution? So they're, they're, they're nominating judges who have a different view than what you just described. And now we're spending all this time having these debates in the legislative UN, which is really not productive. Um, I mean, for the most part, I think just looking at the kind of the, the overall policy trajectory of the Thai administration, you know, it has made it pretty clear that it wished to stick to ROC framework, including taking like a hard line on South China Sea's islands and so forth, kind of counterproductive policy for, let's say, cementing alliances in the region. Um, but, you know, the Thai administration also has to keep its constituency, its support base happy in terms of appointments. So it's kind of, you know, it's, it's playing like a, a delicate juggling game. Which when you get down to the bet penalty, basically, because, of course... Mm-hmm. They were on a pol- they, some time ago. I believe they were running on a policy of we're going to abolish the death penalty. Mm-hmm. I mean, which of course, while the judges who are being grilled in the legislature might come out and say, "I agree with abolishing it," Joe Public, in all the recent polls, doesn't want to abolish it. We're we're mixing the issues there, right? On the one hand, you have you have issues like the death penalty, right? Someone could look at the current constitution and make a determination, uh, and it would be an intellectually honest position to take that the death penalty violates the Constitution. It, it just, that's a different discussion from whether or not one thinks the Constitution is, is, uh, is junk and really shouldn't apply to the island of Taiwan. That also is a reasonable position to take. What I'm saying is if the government position is the Constitution does apply, we're not looking to junk it, uh, they shouldn't be apporting, uh, uh, nominating judges who are saying the Constitution is junk. Mm. Brian, closing thoughts? Um, I think that the Thai administration is kind of waffling, though, between kind of pan blue and pan green appointments at this point. It's trying to keep, you know, for some reason, it's trying to keep everybody happy, and sometimes that, you know, makes nobody happy. So it, it just it weirdly flip flops sometimes, you know, between considering a more pan blue candidate than when that candidate is rejected, so like considering a pan green one. It's very strange at this point. I mean, with the, you know, the foreign policy establishment. Um, or just, you know, general key positions regarding judicial reform and so forth. I mean, you know, with the judicial rent especially, I mean, there's the demand for judicial reform going forward. So, I mean, that that probably is why she's playing a delicate game there. Um, mm. All right. So, tricky questions for the Thai administration to answer and uh, probably more tricky questions for these judicial nominees to answer as well. 
Uh, but that's going to be coming up in the next couple of days, so we're going to leave it here. Coming up on a break, when we return, all the vices. We'll talk about all of them. And then for our podcast listeners, we, of course, have a bonus story. This week, we'll be talking about a poll to determine the villages and townships with the goofiest names in Taiwan. So you'll get to hear us struggle to understand puns in Taiwanese. Fun for the whole family. Look for that on the podcast edition of Taiwan This Week. Uh, For now, do stay tuned to the show. A whole lot more coming up after this. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Ross Feingold, and Brian Hugh. Advocates of gambling in Penghu rolled the dice for a second time, bringing their case to the people and putting the decision to a public referendum. And they got snake eyes. Or, I mean, I don't, I don't really understand Taiwanese dice games. Uh, whatever is bad in those games is what they got. Because after a vote last Saturday, the overwhelming result was a resounding no on casino gambling. Now, Gavin, uh, we kind of covered this in depth, I think, three weeks ago. Uh, but let's just get everybody caught up. What was this referendum on, exactly? The referendum was whether the residents of Penghu wanted casinos to open on the island. Make it into something of a resort. Basically, they're resorts. Large resort hotels with casinos in them. And this goes back to 2009, when that was legalized in Taiwan's outlying island, pending local referendums such as this. Yes, it was already been... Matsu had a referendum recently. 2012, I believe. There we go. Recent, that's recently enough for me to be recently. <laughs> and they voted f- two open casinos there. Right. Peng, who had a referendum in 2009 and voted it down. Mm-hmm. This so past, this is the second Peng, the second Peng re- referendum. And they also voted it down. Now, according to official results, which were announced by the Peng Election Commission, 6,210 residents voted for the proposed casinos, mm-hmm. while 26,598 people voted against the casinos. Now, it was what's interesting is it was... There was only a 39.56% turnout. Very low turnout. So I would have to say, very bluntly, looking at that, nobody on Peng who really cares. Well, 60% of people don't really care. Which is a majority. Right. Well, that was, that, the same was true in 2009. There was a 42% yeah. turnout there back was, then. Yeah, so yeah. There was a slightly better turnout back, back then. then. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's dropped even further now. But, of course, what's interesting is if the Peng who residents had voted yay rather than nay then the casinos wouldn't have simply sprung up overnight anyway because, of course, there's a whole heap of things that need to be debated in the legislative UN. It's like an enabling law that needs to be put in effect. Basically a law, basically a regulatory system to be put into effect vis-a-vis how casinos could operate there in the first place. And just to prove that, Matsu has already voted in favour of gambling, but they don't have it yet because they don't have this law. One of the best comments was from the DPP caucus whip, Ker Jeng Ming, who came out two days before the referendum and basically said, the results are completely superfluous (laughs) because (laughs) we have no plans to debate any casino regulatory laws in the legislative UN for the foreseeable future. Exactly. And, uh, of course, the DPP opposes gambling in the but outlying as a party, islands. it opposes. Well, gambling. I don't know. That's debatable. Tai kind of came out this week and made some statements yeah, saying. Yeah, but you've got to remember that Penghu is not altogether blue, and lots of people in Penghu were actually for mm-hmm. the gambling thing. While while they obviously got voted down, there was a big push. This time there was a big push for. Mm-hmm. Last time there was a big push against. Mm. 
they it got voted down again. So there you go. But they can't have another referendum for three years now, so I guess Okay, so go. that's three years of that. Uh, and probably this is going to stall uh, that quote-unquote enabling referendum. So that's uh, probably not just important for Penghu, but also important for Matsu, Ross? Um, Matsu, and as well as Jinmen, which uh, is currently organizing a referendum uh, uh, very, very mm-hmm. similar to the one that was held in Matsu and Penghu. Uh, date to be determined, but the pro-casino uh, camp is currently in the process of organizing that. Uh, uh, the question now is, where do we go from here as far as tourism development in Penghu? Uh, clearly, it's not going to be an integrated resort with a casino. That that one is is off. Off the table. Uh, casinos are an important part of bringing tourists in numerous places around the region, including Korea, and Philippines, Macau, Singapore, Malaysia. So there is a risk that uh, not having integrated resorts might, might some would say, uh, cause less tourists to come to Taiwan. Um, so the question is, where do we go from here on Penghu? Uh, it looks like uh, Brian has the answer. Um, well, I mean, you know, Ty keeps saying green development and so forth, but it, it's a very big question what exactly that means. Um, you know, that, sound, that sounds nice, but what does that actually mean in terms of concretely attracting tourists? Um, Right. Uh, Premier Lin Tran came out, I believe, Wednesday and said uh, the island chain could be developed into a green energy islands with distinctive tourist attractions. I mean, it ultimately returns to uneven development on Taiwan's outlying islands because, you know, the DPP is sometimes seen as, uh, you know, Taiwan mainland centric, let's say. Um, You know, this is an issue, for example, Jingmen, in which, you know, it's so close to China that 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 raises issues of identity. But whereas Penghu is is different because, you know, there is some support for the DPP there. Perhaps, you know, casino building casinos would bring in a lot of Chinese tourists and it would go the way of Macau in becoming very pro-China because, you know, the economy is then dependent on Chinese tourism. Um, but again, you know, that returns to the broader question of, of tourism in general in Taiwan because, you know, the Thai administration claims that it wants more ecologically fr- friendly initiatives in tourism and the energy industry and everything else. But, you know, what does that actually mean? Well, you've got to remember, Brian, that the fact that if you open casinos on Penghu, mm-hmm. you probably wouldn't draw in a lot of Chinese tourists because China bans its nationals from even going to Macau to gamble these days. Mm-hmm. But, so you're not yeah. going to get Chinese tourists going there to gamble at all. Now, when you think about where you can go gambling in the Asia region, Singapore, Malaysia, if you're a foreign national, you can gamble in Vietnam, Japan, Korea. Penghu's mm-hmm. going to be pretty low down on the list of people mm-hmm. of places where people with money would want to go gambling. The Penghu casinos were basically being aimed at the local population. So local tourists would go there and gamble. So you're saying less Las Vegas and more Reno? I guess so. I don't know what that means. Oh, okay. That means it's a great segue into the discussion about prostitution, I suppose. I guess we could use that as a, I guess we could use that as a segue. Right, I always forget Gavin's never been to the U.S., but, uh, yeah, let, let us use that no, as a I have, segue. I, I have morals. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 that, that's a nice way of saying he's on the no-fly list. <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 they check for that at customs. Yeah, you'd probably get kicked right out. Uh, all right, so uh, on to the prostitution topic. Uh, Taipei Mayor Kowenja has earned the ire of one constituency we don't talk much about, sex workers. This Tuesday, about a dozen from a group called Collective of Sex Workers and Supporters 
demonstrated right outside of City Hall, criticizing the mayor for failing to live up to a campaign promise to consider sanctioning prostitution and red light zones in Taipei, Gavin. Yeah, well, what, when Taipei Mayor Ko Wen-jil was actually running for office, he actually said that he would actually debate the possible legalization of prostitution in the capital. Now, he has yet to do this, which is why they held the rally this week. They're basically saying, hey, you've forgotten what you said. Yeah, basically, yeah. Hello, we're here. Just a little reminder. Basically, yeah. And they also, an interesting other thing they were protesting this week is police entrapment. Basically, they were saying that the police in Taipei have basically been entrapping people mm-hmm. and for soliciting. And using that as a way and to get using fine that money. As a way to get fine money. There was one case. This this guy, this guy from the collective of sex workers and supporters group, was cited as quoting one sex worker who was apparently arrested last year by police for soliciting over the internet several times and faces fines of up to one million NT. Mm-hmm. While prostitution, well, this is their issue. Pro- prostitution is illegal. This collective of prosti- of sex workers and supporters argued that many people in the sex industry are not there because they want to be it's there because they have to support their families and support people and paying large fines is basically not going to help them do that Mm. Uh, and uh, one issue here is a lot of these sex workers are getting into their middle years uh, a lot of them because i correct me if i'm wrong the prostitution was legal in the early 90s in taipei yes so a lot of these uh, people that are still in this industry are kind of holdovers from that era. Uh, and one thing that the leaders of this group are pointing out is that they don't necessarily have uh, the skills to get involved in any other kinds of industries. So, yes, uh, is, uh, is this an issue that you see getting any traction, uh, Ross? Well, the, it's gone back and forth, as, as you indicated, for, for many years. I, I don't think the public is going to be terribly upset if prostitution was legalized. Uh, but there's a more nuanced part of this discussion, which is the legal framework under which it would be legalized would probably be something like you can only do it in a certain district and you need to be registered. And, and frankly, I doubt most of the uh, workers who, who are joining this protest would want to participate in that kind of program. It's it's complex, it's time-consuming, and you actually might lose some money by being part of the legal framework. I think what the workers would prefer would just be a broad uh, legalization. That's probably not going to happen. But if, if people wanted to seek a compromise and take the safe way out, then, yeah, they would legalize it under this kind of more regula- regulatory, uh, stronger regulatory framework. Uh, but I, I don't think that's going to ultimately help the sex workers with the concerns they have about uh, finding alternative work. Um, I mean, it's something that, you know, a lot of activists involved in gender and sexuality kind of activism have raised in the past. I mean, there's like a longer history of of demonstrating against Taipei mayors that, you know, to kind of go back on, you know, the uh, the banning of or the the legalization of of, um, sex work. Um, So we'll have to see how how Co handles it. But, you know, I mean, I think we do have to view it as one of these kind of things he promised while he was running and he might not actually push forward. Um, in regards to a lot of kind of promises he made to like Taiwanese youth activists and so forth. So, I mean, just mm-hmm. looking at this through the lens of you know broader activism, would would this kind of fall under a lot of the youth issues that we see? I mean, would would for example labor activists or campaigners for LGBT rights would they also see this as a cause that they would get behind? 
Um, it, it's a question. I mean, we would see about that. I mean, it's one of these kind of like single issue things. For example, you know, like anti-nuclear activists might only work on anti-nuclear issues. Well, so, I don't know about that. Well, yeah. that one has it kind of has a broad coalition. If you're, yeah, you know, yeah. if you're an activist, Sometimes, or let's say land of, you know, some people specialize in certain things. Right. Um, I don't know if it will become an issue that will have broader traction among, you know, among youth activism in general. But we'll see. Mm. Uh, keeping in mind the calendar, though, with the university games coming up a, a little less than a year from now, I think it's it's next August, probably not the kind of international publicity that Merico wants uh, with a large number of foreign visitors, especially younger foreign visitors coming to Taipei. And then a year after that will be election time. So probably something he should have done very quickly uh, early in his tenure when he had the political capital from a resounding election victory. And as Brian said, he had made a number of promises to different constituencies. He has not followed up on them. On them and, and now it's probably too late. Hmm. So the way that this is being framed by these activists is really as a social issue. You know, there's these people in need uh, that don't have the skills to get a, get support themselves in any other form of work. So if we're looking at this as a social issue, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily see why legalizing prostitution is the best way to deal with a social issue. Um, I think the argument's that, you know, it is systemic, so there, this will happen anyway. So, you know, there are people that will go towards sex work. So, you know, that, that, that's, that's why, you know, blanket legalization. Mm. Or also just, you know, the fact that, um, you know, why are we, why are we, you know, why is, why is the government interfering with people's rights to their own bodies? Um, but, you know, this, this goes back to the fact that a lot of these people have a history. Um, there's, there's one building in particular, Wenman Building, which has seen a lot of activism um, mm-hmm. over, you know, the fact that it was going to be de- demolished and has this history and that, you know, there are people that was using, living there and organizing there um, and so forth. And, you know, that, that was one of the things that Co sort of seemed to promise to preserve, but then he kind of went back on, along with a lot of his uh, urban demolitions. Mm. Yeah, this matter doesn't concern the women that work in this sort of illegal, expensive bar brothels mm-hmm. that still exist but shouldn't exist. Uh, Co doesn't have a great record um, in regards to these kind of issues. You know, he's made uh, demeaning con- con- comments towards uh, gynecologists before. So, mm. um, All right. Well, uh, one of the many issues that's piling up on the good mayor's desk, uh, we'll see if he uh, gets to it in time for the Universiade, because uh, obviously that's going to be the biggest thing weighing on his mind in just a few months. Uh, but we're going to scurry on away from this topic before uh, we say something stupid and offensive. I think we've done okay so far, but uh, not going to test our luck. So moving away from the two vices of gambling and sex and on to another thorny issue that's uh, more thorny for Tsai Ing-wen than anyone else just because of the political baggage that comes along with it. Whether or not to pardon uh, former President Chen Shui-bian, uh, this week Mayor Chen Zhu, Kaohsiung Mayor Chen Zhu, came out and called on the president to make that pardon. But uh, I think uh, it's not too hard to see why that would be a very dangerous thing to do. Uh, let's start with uh, what Mayor Chen Zhu said, Gavin. Yeah, the Kaohsiung mayor came out and said that the Tsai administration should deal with the issue of whether to pardon Chen Shui-bian and, quote, rapidly, legally, fairly and reasonably. Of course, Chen Shui-bian has served more than six years of his 20-year sentence for several corruption convictions and he was released from the Taichung prison on medical parole in January of 2015. Of course, he was initially released on medical parole, I believe, for three months and since then it's just been extended. He was set to... He was talked... 
There was talk, rather, of him attending um, the Double Ten ceremony this year in Taipei. But um, the Taichung prison put the kibosh on that, citing medical grounds. Now, he appeared on television very briefly, mm-hmm. the first time in a long time, actually, when all this was debate was going on, whether mm-hmm. he could attend the tendon. And he, well, he was in a wheelchair and not looking too well at all. Mm. So, I think, so maybe his doctors had a point. And yes, I think possibly they did. Mm. All right. So bringing this debate back into the public sphere, do you see broad support for this, Ross? Well, we we knew this would happen, right? We knew this moment would come when uh, parts of the the DPP constituency, uh, whether it's at the grassroots level where there's still a lot of support for Chen Shui-bian, he remains popular, or with DPP personalities and leadership like Mayor Chen Ju, we knew this would come where they would bring it up and, and they would start pursuing it. Uh, so they're, they're, it's a fair point to say that uh, Tsai should either kill this now uh, or, or make a decision that, that she's going to do it and, and not let it stretch on for an extended period of time. Uh, it, it's not clear what the justification for a pardon is, though. The, the fact that he's ill is not a justification. The fact that he's ill was a justification for the medical parole which the previous administration granted him, and he's continued to receive, as Gavin mentioned. What is the case for pardoning him? Has, has he done something uh, good post-conviction? Uh, no, he's been sick. He's on medical parole. It's not like he's out doing charitable activities. He can't. Um, there's no new evidence to say that he was wrongly convicted. In fact, we're quite certain that a, a, a very unfortunate and large amount of criminal and corrupt activities occurred. Uh, so what, what's the justification other than he's our friend, he's from our, our side of the political divide? I, I don't think that ac- advances arguments for judicial reform or improving the judicial system if we're going to circumvent it by giving a pardon absent significant justification for doing so. Hmm. So, yeah, is this just partisan politics, Brian? Um, it is unsurprising that you know Chen Zhu would argue for pardoning Chen Shui-bian because you know they they were they have a long history going back to the Dangwei movement, um, and you know of course there are calls within the DPP that to pardon him that have been going back you know very long, um, you know he ha- he has his loyalists Chen has his loyalists, um, but it is actually an issue that divides actually the Pan Green camp because you know people um, some people believe it was a frame up of Ma against Chen and some people believe that. Um, you know, that he is innocent and that, you know, Tsai should rectify this. Um, mm. I mean, it is, it is kind of a symbolic measure. Um, but, but obviously those beliefs would kind of cleave uh, along party lines. Yeah, unsurprisingly. Um, mm. But there, there are people in the pan-green camp who also do believe that Chen was corrupt. So mm. that could also raise controversy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there, we, again, there is no new evidence to say that he was wrongly or unfairly convicted. Uh, he hasn't done anything or said anything uh, other than – or his surrogate, his main surrogate being his son, but other friends like Chen Zhu, you know, continuing to say it was it was unfair. But they haven't produced any new evidence to say that it was a wrongful conviction or that his sentence was inordinate. And again, he is on medical parole. So what is the justification? I mean, what is, what is the legal justification here? Mm. Uh, getting kind of beyond the legal justification, I mean, Brian, uh, just to the politics of this, uh, I think the uh, political hit is pretty obvious uh, for going forward with the pardon. It kind of feels like, you know, Tsai would be covering for one of her own. It feels like a cover-up. Uh, is there a political hit if she does nothing? I mean, wouldn't, would, a, would there be a sizable constituency that would really feel wronged if Tsai didn't go through with the pardon? 
Um, well, currently Chen is on is on medical leave, and it doesn't seem like he'll be put back in jail anytime soon. So I, I think that you know probably the status quo will remain. It'd be a different story if he were still in jail. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. the emotionalism has kind of been taken out of this issue. Yeah, yeah. Or, or look at it another way. The most important thing for Tsai Ing-wen right now is to be reelected uh, three years from now. So if she does not issue the pardon, will uh, will there be people who want her to lose the nomination for the next cycle? No. Uh, she will easily be the DPP nominee next time, absent some other issues. This alone is not going to prevent her from being the DPP nominee and for running for a second term. So I, I would say the facts, at least as we know them now, indicate she should reject the pardon. I think she's probably hoping it will just go away, and I think that yeah. Chen will remain free on medical parole, so to speak, in a sort of a free sort of way. Another one of those issues that she's kind of just hoping. I mean, to could go you away. imagine being, the status quo? Could, could, yeah. could, could <laughs> you imagine being the person that was told to go and pick him up and take him back to the big house? Yeah, mm. that that that, that, that would job. just that would be even worse for Tsai. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically, that could never happen, and she would she could never do that without losing a lot of support. So just leave if that hornet nest, yeah, nest yeah, alone. Just leave him where he is. All right, so that is it for the broadcast portion of the show. Now we're moving on to our podcast bonus story. And, uh, Gavin, we got some silly names to get to. Yeah, we had a list this week. was published of Taiwan's wackiest, silliest, most inane village and township names. And we have a special guest in the studio today. We have the wonderful Ping Ping, because we're all inept in Taiwanese. So Ping Ping is going to read us some of the most inane names of villages in Taiwan. Exactly. So Ping Ping is in our uh, production department. Uh, she Thank helps you. produce shows like this. Uh, welcome to Ping Ping. She is going to break down to us uh, why these names are stupid because uh, nobody wants to hear us fumble with Taiwanese. Yeah, but you know, some word, maybe it's not the good word, you know, good meaning in Chinese. Okay, well, remember, this is just going out on a podcast, so we should, uh, we should be okay. Okay, I hope so. And then, you know, the, in the, like the first one, they say uh, house in friend, and the friend. F L A M E D. What's the? How do you say it in in Chinese? Uh, Hui Xiao Chu. Mm-hmm. You know the 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 so house. house of flame. Yeah, basically. house in flame, mm-hmm. right? And then who won't live there? Who wants yeah. to live in a house in flames? No, that's right. Because but you know the the reason from is the Qing Dynasty is uh the person is want to become a rich guy and then one day in dreaming and then the guys leave him a note and it actually is a Da Rao village. Mm. But he just read one and it say seems like it's a hui xiu chu. Da look like the huo. Ah. Okay, so that's a misunderstanding there. Ah, so 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 this one is just because the guy can barely read. Yes, yeah, so, so he the, named it wrong. The people jogging at it, they say. I see. Yes. And then the second one will be uh, Huan Bo Village. Okay, so this is a Taiwanese name. Chun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Huan Bo, and it's an indigenous uh, women, woman, whatever. And uh, actually, that's true. That's an uh, indigenous people that live there. Mm-hmm. Been a long time. So mm-hmm. that's why they call the village names. And then the number third, I really don't want to read it out. <laughs> okay. It's the Chinese, it means uh, your father. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Lin so, Bei. So, <laughs> See, I can read it. That's all right. I can read it. <laughs> But I didn't say it. Okay. We played that on the radio before. It's okay. Uh, and then, and then some word, some name is uh, making people confused. Mm-hmm. For example, like uh, the uh, we uh, we came to the crossroad or intersection. Mm-hmm. And then, can you imagine that's the the name of a village? 
I think that's pretty cool. I'd like to live in a village called a Crossroads Village. Oh, big, big road village. I think that's excellent. So the name of the city is what in Chinese? Yeah, it's a Shizhi Lu Kao. So just okay. right out there, Crossroads Village. That's the name. That's what we're calling our town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If a lot of people know that we we came to this village, and then, but the name is uh, Shizhi Lu Kao, and people probably will make it. So what, what are you talking about? Why we do the, something in the intersection? Do, why we should do there? Okay. It's the whole town. Yes. Well, there, there's a famous American philosopher who once gave uh, dire- driving directions to his home to a, mm. to a visitor, and he's the di- directions were when you get to the fork in the road, take it. Ah, mm. right. So this whole town, when you get to the town in the road, name it. Uh, okay, we can. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, just give us one more from the list. Okay, there's and too many to get through today, so just one more. Is the, the with the beautiful name like uh, the number ten is Hao uh, Mei Li. Okay, so instead of Hao Mei Li, it's Hao right. Mei Li. Yeah, it is Hao Mei Li. This is like the foreign people pronounce the Chinese. <laughs> Cannot make thanks, it thanks a lot, Peng. Hao <laughs> <laughs> Mei Li. It's easy to understand. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the number nine, it will be San Nai Li. Mm. Okay, San Nai Li is... That's Chinese. That's not Taiwanese. It's, it's Chinese. Mm-hmm. San Nai is mean that your second fair. Like and then it's Er Nai. Uh-huh. Okay, and then mm. San Nai just is... Your third affair. Yes. <laughs> ah, so this village is named after a third affair? Yeah, San Nai Li in Kaohsiung. They got a famous soccer team. They play away all the time. Oh! Oh! <laughs> Okay, and then that's... I think Ping Ping was pretending she got that one. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want to admit that, okay? (laughs) It would be really interesting if that town had a sister-city relationship with somewhere else. Mm. Mm, Lots of questions raised by this. All right, one more, one more. And then then somewhere... uh, Number five, I really don't want to mention that. It's talking about the... It's the one organs for men... <clears throat> okay, mm-hmm. touch it. Done. <laughs> so wh- why why don't the residents of of that particular one change the name? Because they uh, like it. The men or the women? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done the reporting to answer that question. Okay, that's it. And All right. Then- so if nothing else, we succeeded in embarrassing Ping Ping, which uh, we always try to Sorry. do on the show. Uh, but thank you for being a good sport and uh, explaining some of that to us non-Taiwanese speakers. Uh, Happy thank- to be here. All right. So a lot of fun stuff uh, right there. A little bit of uh, edifying nameology today. But we'll have to round out the show for there today. Please do join us again next time. Time on this week broadcasts every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100, around about 8.15 p.m. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, and wherever you can expect to find fine podcasts. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined as always by Gavin Phipps. Hey, good night, and I'm going back to my crossroads village now. Mm, that seems to be the place to be. Uh, also joined by Ross Feingold. Thank you, Ross. Thank you. Good night. And Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. Good night. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. They call me help. Joining me in studio is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Hey, good evening. And also in studio with t- and also in studio with us. <laughs> this is not a good start. Not- Just start opening yeah. it, Jerry. This is not going well. All right. Hey.
All right. Good evening. <laughs> <laughs> They call me hell.